Good morning. Um, I'm here today with Shirley Yanis, who um, I'm very, very excited to meet. I've just taken a train from Preston to Birmingham for the opportunity, and um, I actually met Shirley uh, on Facebook. Um, so this is the first time we've met face to face. Um, what what attracted me to Shirley when we became Facebook friends was obviously the content of her posts and I just thought she had, I could tell that she had an amazing story to tell. So I'm here today to talk about that story and um, I know she's going to be the most amazing fit to women inspiring women. So hello, hello. <laughs> and thank you for um, meeting up with this strange lady that contacted you out of the blue. Well, we are in an amazing place. We are. We are in Selfridges, so that's quite good. Yeah, I've, I've managed to do a bit of shopping already. I know, already, already. got you so. the back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think the best place to start is really tell us about yourself and how you have arrived today in Selfridges with the experience that you have. Okay, well, my story is interesting. I started off, you know, in a very poor environment in a council house on a council estate, one of five, and um, wasn't a particularly pleasant childhood, but, you know, it was not like today. It was quite safe, and we all took care of each other, but it was a place I knew right from the very, very beginning that I wouldn't stay, and I needed to, you know, move on from. I knew there was a whole world out there, so basically when I was 16, I left home and went to London with my little backpack and my big blue eyes and thought, right, where is it? You know, where's the men in pinstripe suits? Where's the city? Where can I find this amazing opportunity to make money? I got very lucky. I got a job in a recruitment firm, a high street recruitment firm. Mm -hmm. And within six months, I was promoted to office manager and my salary was put up, put up, put up and I could finally eat, which was great. Wow. Um, and then, you know, through determination, self-confidence, which I believe I got from being a miracle baby because in that difficult uh, environment in the council house my mom and dad hadn't had a child for almost 10 years and their marriage had been bad and then on new year's eve they obviously got a bit drunk and spent the night together and i was born so for just the first 18 months of my life i was installed with this amazing isn't she wonderful isn't she fabulous isn't so subconsciously i kind of always believed i i had you know confidence and yeah. would make it um, and I went within this firm, this recruitment firm, I went right to the top until I became MD. Gosh, how many years did that take? Um, took about eight. Um, so you were still in your early 20s? Yeah, yeah, I was young. And I was, had all these women working for me and they were really, I mean, recruitment's an amazing business because then predominantly it was women. They were obviously very good sales. Yeah. So I got to my mid-twenties and I'd made it in terms of the, being involved with a company, you know, I wasn't working for myself and I bought my first flat, and um, which was fantastic. Where was in, that? In Denmark Hill, outside okay. London. Yeah. But then my biological clock started to tick so loud, I started thinking when I've climbed all the way up here, mm -hmm. do, you know, do I want to have a baby and a husband and, you know, I've got here and I've made the money and so I, you know, met somebody actually um, over a lunch, a client, we ended up liking each other and very quickly I got married and I had the big white wedding in mm -hmm. Nicebridge with the wow. big meringue dress and yeah. the white car and he lived 
in Jersey and um, I gave everything up and went to live in Jersey to be in housewife heaven and you know start thinking about having babies and, but very quickly I realized um, you know this just wasn't for me you know I, was, I still hadn't quite made it you know I made it for somebody else but not for not me so I, the marriage ended and I went back to London and I went to work for a financial recruitment company um, and I learned that side of the business and very quickly thought, well, this is where the money is, you know, moving traders around um, and emerging, global emerging markets were booming then. So um, I coerced a friend of mine, an old client, into lending me £5,000 to start my own financial headhunting firm. I got an office on Bishopsgate. Gosh. I hired a young boy who was brilliant at sales, and I just started using my knowledge and the clients that I had to to build this business. And it, I was lucky, really, because it was a time where the markets were really expanding and bankers were moving. So there was a lot of. Are we in the mid eighties? Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of early nineties. There was a lot of opportunity mm. for for growth in that area. So my timing was perfect. Mm. Um, and I ended up building this company globally um, from nothing. I have no O-levels, I'm dyslexic and um, here I was you know, going to Moscow without being able to be enough to speak Russian, going yeah. to New York. But during this time, I kind of sold my soul, if that makes any sense. I didn't really sleep with any of the clients, but I was getting them trinkets to do deals and because that's how it works in this man's world yes yeah. you know the best broker who gives the best time gets the best deal so i watched a lot of really ugly stuff and i kind of ended up being more focused on making money than on developing my own well, you know spirituality i think you become your environment you do you? you do that's i became i was smoking drinking you were um, being one of the lads. One of the boys, yeah. <laughs> I became one of the boys. Yeah. And, and funnily enough, in that way, I got a lot of respect from them because it, it's not a woman's world, trust me. No matter what we think, yeah. you know, the, if, if a banking client is looking for a secretary, he's not going to hire the fat little ugly one in the corner. No. They've got specific things that they want eye candy. And so I ended up kind of... Selling my soul to make my millions, mm -hmm. and I eventually climbed from that council house to the top of the money mountain, yeah. and sat on the top and thought, "Okay, so now I've got three houses, I've got a beautiful car, I've got more money in the bank than I could ever wish for, I've got this incredible company that I built mm -hmm. with hard work and." But I'm not happy. That must be um, that must be a really difficult thing to come to. It's really shocking because you believe on this journey to the top yeah. that it's the money that will that will create the happiness. But it just didn't. Yes. And trust me, I had everything. I mean, more money than you could dream of. I'd been to Necker Island, I'd been to Barbados, I'd got 25 Chanel handbags, I'd got Hermes Birkins, I'd got, I mean, 
in beautiful homes, beautiful clothes, beautiful everything, everything that everybody believes is the secret mm -hmm. to happiness. But I was empty. Yeah. And very sad. And a stranger. I didn't know myself. Yeah. I didn't know who I was. So how did you turn it around? Well, my best friend who'd um, left London, she worked for me in the recruitment company. Um, she moved to LA to marry a stranger and she was living this life in Manhattan Beach um, and I'd been a few times to visit her and um, she asked me to be made of honour at her wedding so I flew over to LA and I paid for the wedding as well because that's what your friends do when you're rich, they get you to pay for everything. And she wanted this really glamorous wedding. That's really interesting. <laughs> well, they do. I mean, you, you, you suddenly become the bank to your friends. Um, and she wanted this big glamorous wedding and couldn't afford it. So she was living above her means. Yes. In her mind, she was trying to be this. But really, the reality was very different. And at this wedding, uh, her new husband's brother was the best man. And he was extremely good looking. A bit like Antonio Banderas. Okay. Mexican and had a very interesting personality and we ended up getting very drunk together and doing some drugs together and got very high and he said to me after the wedding, do you want to go to Las Vegas on the back of my Harley Davidson? Oh, interesting. Well, I guess that now is yes. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, this to me suddenly seemed more interesting than what I had at home. So I wasn't thinking, I was drinking. And I was escaping and it yeah. just seemed fantastic. And I literally woke up three days later in the Bellagio Hotel, married to a oh, complete wow. stranger. Okay. With money all over the bed and and on reflection I, I, I woke up and I was like, Well, I don't like my life anymore in England. I can just sell everything. Move here to beautiful LA where it's just fantastic. He wasn't particularly wealthy, but he was really good looking and really nice. And I just thought, you know what, this, if this is the time, I'll, I'll put all my money in the stock market and I'll look for my happily ever after in LA. So I, I sold everything, I sold my company, I put all my money in the dot-com stock market, which was booming at the time, mm -hmm. on the advice of my bank. And I moved to LA to live happily ever after. How frightened I was. Well, at the time, yeah, because at the time it, it actually seemed like a miracle. That's how unhappy I was. Yes. But I was prepared to risk everything to change my reality. And find, well, it wasn't in the money. So, where, you know, was it here? Was, was moving away going to lead me to happiness? So, anyway, I bought a beautiful house on the Strand in Manhattan Beach where you know, all the celebrities live and... And your friend was there. And my friend, well, she lived off the road. She couldn't yeah. afford to live there, but she, she was there and she was still drinking and I had a lot of empathy for her because I could see she'd made a terrible mistake marrying, you know, a stranger. And I was starting to think, oh, you know, have I done the right thing? But I thought, no, I'm going with it. I'm going to do it. And I'd always wanted to live in Hollywood. You know, it was just another dream. Yeah. So it materialised in the most strange way. And I'd been in LA three months, and as you know, the dot-com market burst overnight. And within, I think, 
think it's about 11 days I lost all my millions. And literally, that's how quick that market burst. Because right. none of those companies were real. This is when no. Facebook was just an idea. Instagram was an idea. And people were believing it was it was just a bit too early. So I've read him, Elon Musk's right. story. Then, then Same know. thing right. for him. Right. Yeah. So I just assumed that money would always be safe because it's all about going up, 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 up. And actually, the day before the market crashed, my old secretary in London called me and said, you know, there's some news, things aren't looking good, I think you should, you should pull out. And I said, no, this is the time to buy more. So I ended up buying, and as it was dropping, my broker was saying, you know, great, it's gone down to $30, buy more, because when it goes back up, because it always goes back up, that's what happens. But what they don't tell you is it doesn't go back up immediately because it's all virtual. So anyway, um, very quickly, overnight, all my money was just gone. Every so, penny. Every penny. So here I was in LA with this great big house. I hadn't, thank goodness, hadn't um, gone into escrow with it. So it was we were about to sign the deal. So I got this great big house, this new poor husband, it was good looking but no money. But I did have a lot of diamonds, a lot of jewellery, a lot of art, a, a lot of handbags. Chanel handbags everywhere. So I had a lot of stuff, but now I had no liquid yeah. liquid cash. So it was a, it was just a nightmare and obviously the marriage didn't work because without the money and the looks faded and you know, obviously I didn't hardly know him, so there was never going to we weren't going to fight this battle together now. And my friend, best friend, has also decided that she wasn't going to remain with the brother. So we both walked away from the marriages together. Um, and uh, to be really honest, when I lost the, all the money initially, I wasn't that devastated because I kind of thought, well, it didn't make. I didn't. Ha it, it didn't have any value to me because it hadn't made me happy. So yeah. you know, win some, lose some. Mm -hmm. I'm a gambler. You know, I gambled it. I lost it. It didn't initially bother me until about maybe about four or five months into having lost it, and then I started really thinking about it and worrying more about what other people thought about me for losing it. So really? I actually got some status anxiety because I didn't have the power anymore. Yeah. It's the ego, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, my ego it's was the ego, yeah. bruised like crazy. Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't open the doors I used to be able to open. I couldn't and so I started worrying about and I was in this apartment on my own in Hermosa Beach, which wasn't the big house I'd bought. Yeah, it's a much different it's still nice, but it, and I was quite lonely, and I couldn't tell my family I'd lost all my money, so I was just so embarrassed and humiliated. So, in a moment of, of, of this anxiety and depression, I had this overflow of emotion that just came from nowhere, and that's what depression happens with depression. It hits you in a way from left field that you have no way to prepare yourself for that. And so I actually went to the store, I bought a bottle of tequila, I had some sleeping tablets and I attempted to end my life. Um, because you lose, 
it, it happens very quickly. It all comes, and it was nothing to do with losing the money, as I say, it was to do with a sudden realisation of all of this journey in one go, the, the mistakes, the pain, the misery, the loss of the money, the marriage, the my friend's situation being miles away from home. It just hit me in one go. But thank whatever is out there that's looking out for me. The universe. The universe, yeah, yeah it didn't work because I, I woke up and I went for a walk on Hermosa Beach the following day. How did you day. feel when you woke up? Grateful. Oh yeah, grateful. I mean, yeah. first time I'd ever felt gratitude. Yeah. And it made me feel quite happy. So it's free. Yeah. And I felt it for real. Wow. And I went for a walk on Hermosa Beach, and I was. It was very quiet, and it was. I was looking at the sun, and I was looking at the sea, and I was thinking, I'm so grateful. I'm just grateful. Who am I saying I'm grateful to? Did it look different? Oh yeah. I've got. But I had to say thank you to somebody. You know, I had to. And I'm not religious, so. I, couldn't look up at the sky and say to that invisible man, I couldn't. So I started just saying thank you to myself. And it was this incredible, and then this man came up to me, really good looking man. Because even the homeless people in LA are good looking. And he was an actor who'd arrived there from Chicago or somewhere, and he hadn't worked out, and he'd been homeless for a long time, and he, he started talking to me, and I remember saying, I don't have anything. I can't give you anything. He said, well, actually, I've got an orange in my pocket. I'll share it with you. Because this is, you know, this is food from the gods and it will make us both better. And in my old life, I would have completely ignored a homeless person had they spoken to me. I was so horrible. I would have just been, get away from me. But in that moment, with that orange on that beach, that's when I woke up from my home. And I suddenly realized, you know, gratitude, humility, compassion. You're actually very blessed to have had that moment. Well, it's beautiful. A lot of people don't ever wake up from the coma no. of day-to-day -day life and what things are about. Well, I think it happened because I had had everything. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, I think you have to hit rock bottom, don't you? But this wasn't rock bottom. Not yet. Sadly. But right. what it did do, it prepared me for the real rock bottom that was around the corner. Had this not happened, I never would have survived what was coming for me. Never. So again, I, I'm so grateful that you know that suicide attempt failed. That I I managed to find myself in the most difficult circumstances, and I didn't have any money because you know you realise when you're broke that the things you buy at Tiffany and Van Cleef and Chanel have absolutely no resale value when you resell them. And you can't use a Rolex watch. So when I keep telling my husband it's an investment, it's not. It's you, not get, you get a fraction value. But you really shouldn't be buying it necessarily for an investment. You should buy it because you love it, shouldn't you? And that's what I do. Mm. But when I'm trying to justify it. Well, you have to do You that. have to roll out the old... Um, it's worth it's a lot, Doris. So don't tell him it's, it's never lose value. <laughs> this is all only appreciated. It'll never know. lose value to you, but reselling exactly. diamonds, honestly, you get, especially when you're poor, people know you're poor and yeah. they take advantage of you. And, I and think it, they can smell desperation. Mm, they can. And also, again, you get to realise just how 
worthless it all is. Mm. It's shiny, it's beautiful, but it's worthless in terms of... It's almost ugly. It's ugly, yeah, really ugly. Really, really ugly. So I'd sold quite a lot of things and I ended up where I had just a few dollars left, really a physical cash, because I'd stopped trying to sell my stuff because it was hurting me to, to, to be abused at this point, you know, that yeah. I, I, I knew people. So I had to come up with some something. So I had a, a few dollars left and I went to a bookstore and I bought Modern Day Man in Search of a Soul by Carl Young because I wanted to find somebody who understood the mind. I, obviously I, I, I had to rebuild myself I mean, I'm not a psychologist I had no understanding of how I worked from a psychological perspective yeah. I only knew how to work from a, a workhorse perspective so I bought this book and I read it and I suddenly realised you know, this, this was me this man was me what he was saying he related to his patients because he was honest about his own downfall he admitted he wasn't perfect. Mm -hmm. he, he, to me, he made complete sense. So this book set me on track to do something again with my life. And I decided that as I had a lot of art, I would open an art gallery somehow. Because I had this art. So if I could get a room, mm. I could put the art in the room. I could find local artists. I could... You know, I could yeah. start something as an entrepreneur with very little money. And I met a Russian fresco master called Ilya Amazov, who's been given genius status to live in the US, but they hadn't done anything with him when he got there. They'd left mm. him to start. And he's one of the only five people in the world who can restore the Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo's work if anything happens to him. That's how brilliant this man was. Homeless in LA. Unbelievable. So I got some of his work and I was thinking, what can I do? To but promote? how amazing that you met him. It was amazing. Isn't yeah. it? Well, because when you're homeless, you meet a lot of really great people. I mean, that's where all the real talent lives. You know, don't dismiss it. You know, because usually people who are living their dream and their passion don't give up and go and work in an office as a, as a, a I don't know, yeah. Um, they, they, they believe in their dream and this man even though he was homeless he wasn't giving it up he had something beautiful to offer the world um, so I decided I would get his work and take it to the best in Hollywood get them to put it in their homes elevate him as an artist he'd get rich, I'd get rich and everybody would be happy ever yeah. after and I chose Harvey Weinstein because he was the most powerful person in Hollywood I wrote him a few letters um, I badgered him, chased him, did all my sales tactics on him. Stalked. Stalked him. As we would well, call it today. <laughs> it was stalking, celebrity stalking. Um, and instead of him responding, because this is how Hollywood works, he doesn't talk to anybody, you know, he's God. Um, I got dragged into being invited into Miramax Films because they thought we wanted to make a TV show about art. So I ended up making a pilot for e-television. I ended up getting involved with all these celebrities that putting art in their house. So it actually started to happen for real by default. You and were I adapting to your Exactly. Yeah. And I doubt Harvey even really knew it was happening because he just threw it to somebody else. So anyway, to cut a long story short, I had this amazing journey with Harvey Weinstein, and, and, and at night time when I was on my own in this little flat, I 
think I was having like a, ner a nervous break there. You know, I think I was, I was, this, I'm running around. But yeah. deep, so I started writing this book called Looking for Harvey Weinstein, which was just pouring out of me, and it was, it was, you know, all this pain and all this misery, and it stopped me having to think. It, it kept me focused, and so I wrote this manuscript. And at the time, I actually wasn't feeling very well. I'd been bleeding for about a year. Um, but because I didn't have any medical insurance and no money in LA, I couldn't go and see a doctor. And I kind of thought it was menopause, you know, I was thinking this is part of the, yeah. the menopause process. But I'd been bleeding, I mean, a lot. And I just, you know, it's, again, it was, it's very hard to explain. If you can't go and see a doctor, you can't get medical, you can't do anything, you just have to keep going, and your, your life's falling to bits, you know, you've got to keep going, and obviously I'm very good at that, um, and I woke up one day, and I just collapsed, and my uh, sister-in-law, and uh, now business partner, just took me to Manhattan Beach Hospital, um, and they didn't know I didn't have any insurance, I mean, they have to save your life, and um, they sort of brought me around and um, I had three blood transfusions and this is this is the interesting thing about anybody listening who wants to understand what irrational fear is all about. This is what irrational fear is. The doctor told me if I didn't have the blood transfusions I would die. But I was more afraid that the blood transfusion had HIV in it. So that's the irrational fear of of dying from potential HIV overrode the doctor literally standing there and saying to me, if you don't do this, you're going to die. So it's kind of like being between a rock and a hard place, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was really strange. But anyway, eventually they gave me the three blood transfusions and um, my sister-in-law left me in this hospital. So I was in this hospital bed and I had a priest on one side. Because the one free thing you do get in hospital in LA is last rites. Um, and he was mumbling away, you know, to the Bible, and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, and I didn't feel very well, and then I had the, the phone was ringing because the hospital administrator was saying, look, we can't do any more work on you until we've got your insurance details. I was saying, I don't have a single penny, and they didn't believe me. They just didn't believe me. The priest left, and then in the middle of the night, I got out of bed, and I just, there was blood everywhere I mean, and I mean literally everywhere and the, the blood transfusions hadn't worked and I died I had a cardiac arrest um, and it took I, I don't know how long it took because so did all the beeps start and... well I didn't hear all of that because I was dead um, so but what actually happened is I saw myself in the, I was at the end of the bed. I saw my body mm -hmm. in the bed. I saw the blood. I saw, I didn't hear anything, but I saw myself in this bed. And it was the most amazing feeling. Because all of a sudden I thought, it's over. Did you feel relief? Oh, totally. I was so, it's so funny because again, I'm not sure what relief felt like. Yes. But obviously I know now. And this feeling was so powerful that I'm just so glad. I don't want to do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. I'm just glad it's over. And then all of a sudden, I felt like 
pins and needles all over my body. I had this intense need, you know, pins and needles, and there was a, a nurse putting a, right. the, IV. Uh, thing in, an IV in, and they were giving me more blood. And I've since discovered that it's something like one in a billion chances that your blood rejects, uh, that your body rejects blood. So whether it did have HIV in it and I was right, who knows? Um, was it a miracle? Mm -hmm. Was it a near-death experience? Who knows? But it's a very it's rare, 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 rare thing. Yeah. Um, so I had these blood transfusions. The next day, the doctor said, I've got, we've got to give you a hysterectomy because you've got an eight-pound fibroid in your uterus right. and you are bleeding to death. And no matter how much blood we put in you, this thing is a monster. Um, and I was like, well, I don't, have, I, I don't have insurance. So I've got to go home. And they, they actually were quite um, angry about it. They thought I was saying, you know, I didn't think they were good enough to deal with me. But what I was actually was saying is I can't, I literally can't And I looked like I could, so they, they didn't believe me. Um, so anyway, they threw me out of hospital with enough progesterone tablets to last me, which stops the bleeding. Um, and um, we went back to our apartment, and then a few weeks later, because it took me quite a while to you know, I was weak and yeah. not recover. Yeah. We then got evicted from the house because we couldn't pay the rent. And so I ended up in a homeless shelter in East Compton, which is the most dangerous place in Los Angeles. But unfortunately, that's where the free medical clinic was. And there, again, there's no help for, for people who are in trouble. There's no help for the homeless. And um, I was dying in this homeless shelter. Um, Yeah, but at, that's, at how that's how I felt, how you felt at the 
everybody would judge me, you know. Yeah. Because you know, when you're when you're buying your friends and family, they all think you're fantastic. But and if that's all you've got to hang on to, mm-hmm. you know, you forget about what really matters. Um, so anyway, I signed on the dole in Leicester, which was horrific. I mean, that was horrific because you know, I mean, what could I do? Where was I going to go? I mean, I'm this brilliant businesswoman, but I found my purpose, and I'm not going to make any money on that with that in Leicester. So yeah. it was a bit of a dilemma. But I started talking to um, the the people at the business side of the job centre, and they could see. You know, there was something about me. So they gave me a £300 business loan, which you got back then when you wanted it Um And I decided to think about how I could build a new business that would be a social enterprise. So it would be something I could sell that would make enough money to fund my passion, which was life coaching and offering free talk therapy, like Carl Young did for the yeah. homeless. Um, so the first thing I decided to do is I needed some new clothes because obviously I knew I had to go back out there. So I started to shop in charity shops, which is very different to Selfridges. But I started thinking, oh, this is amazing. You know, I found some really amazing donations from people. And I was thinking, so I'm, I'm buying these donated goods. I'm doing, going to do good looking good. And I found a pair of black leggings that were French, and they were five pounds, and I wore them to death as I was going through this process of trying to find a business. Trying, to, I opened a street clinic in Leicester to um, life coach the homeless. And when these leggings fell off me, I went to try and buy a new pair, and I thought, well, there aren't any great leggings anywhere. Yeah, they're all cheesy, they're all see-through. Where is the? Where are these? And I found out they were 300 pound leggings. Wow. And the French company had gone bankrupt. So I took, um, first of all, I went back to the city. Um, I bought myself a jacket and I put my makeup on. I went back to the city. I raised some finance from an investor. I said, you've got to invest me. I've come up with this idea. And I went to the last, in fact, it's one of the last remaining cotton mills in the UK. And I took the leggings and I said, reproduce this fabric for me. And it took two years, really, yeah, for them to reproduce this magic fabric. Um, and once I produced the fabric, I then went to um, Leicester was always the clothing manufacturing capital of the world. I went to one of the re- remaining clothing firms on Saffron Lane in Leicester, and I said, "I've got this fabric. Cut me this pattern. I'm going to reproduce these 300-pound leggings um, because they are going to make me millions." So I, I, I made the prototype, I trademarked PBL, which is perfect black legging, like LBD. I trademarked yeah. it all over the world. And then I set up Venus Cow, my company. And I did it for two reasons. One, to revive British manufacturing. And two, to fund my passion and my work uh, as a life coach. Yeah. And I guess the rest is history. So give us some headlines about Venus Cow. Well, Venus Cow means beautiful woman. Yeah, Venus and Cow. Um, it's a made in England, luxury, affordable luxury brand that makes. So it's not three hundred pounds. Oh no 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 no. Oh no 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 no. Um, it's thirty pounds for the leggings. But what I wanted to create, I'm always looking forward. 
you know, what's the next thing? Where is fashion going? What's the market doing? And with athleisure, you know, yeah. nobody really makes a legging that you can wear to the gym and you can wear to the bar and you can wear to lie on the sofa. So I wanted to create a collection of a bra top to sort your breasts out. It's made in this beautiful cotton. The leggings, a t-shirt and a vest to create a mannequin that you can then style in your own way and you can mix and match. Right. And I also noticed that M&S and John Lewis just aren't offering quality staple clothing made, from, made in Britain from affordable luxury fabric. So I've created this mini lifestyle collection that the leggings sell all over the world now. And once you've had a pair, the average customer buys seven pairs because once you wear them, you take them off, they become your skin. And a lot of people, a lot of overweight women have worn them during their losing weight process. So it started off with an extra large and yeah. ended up with a small medium. Um, so it's a beautiful, comfortable clothing brand. It's a social enterprise. It's ethical. It's been amazing. And you know, I saw a gap in the market. And, and, and some of the profit from that brand allows me now to life coach the homeless. I've learned a lot about the mind. And I've become the mind detective. So a mini version of Carl Jung. I'm carrying on his work. In a modern day world, because I often think, what would you think about the way we are now? Yeah. How we're all addicted and we're all self-gratification and we've all been you know, brainwashed by brands and to, to buy into things that aren't good for us. And so I've just written my first real book, because looking for Harvey Weinstein was my nervous breakdown. But I think has that ever been published? It's, on, it's online, of course it's been published. Harvey has a copy. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon. I think you have to meet the, read The Mind Detective first, because yeah. if you read that book first, you'd think, what is this? It's it, because it's a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Um, because it's part of a much greater story. The Mind Detective is how I manage to, to, to recover and what I learned, and it teaches you, not in a self-help way, it's kind of like, you, I'll be with you during the whole process. Right. So when you go for your walks, you take me with you. Uh -huh. I remind you, I'm like an accountability coach. So when you lose the will to carry on, or you make a mistake, or you fall off the wagon, or you find yourself drifting unconsciously into your automatic pattern, my voice Draw brings you back, you back reminds you why you're doing it. And it's a whole journey that you go on my journey. And um, sounds fascinating. It's kind of like, um, I want everybody to have free talk therapy. And obviously I can't do that because I can't spread myself. So I planted myself in this book. And it's a bit like something you can, you can be with me and I can, I can guide you through. And not just, you know, dramatic things like happen to me, but everybody needs somebody to talk to. And, and those, those times where you're down and you're low, it, it's very hard to pull yourself out of it. It's, it's easy to lose your uh, way on the path, isn't it? Hi, 
Hi, I'm Lisa. Welcome to my podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, feel free to send me a voice message or visit my website at mrsdblogger.co.uk.